Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership in the data science space. Much of the industry, much of the data science industry focuses on acquiring technical skills, and I think that's very well covered. So in this podcast, we focus on what it takes to become a great leader and have a bigger impact in your career. Today, we speak with Irina Farouk. Irina is the Chief Product Officer at Kinetica. Kinetica is a new type of database, cloud-based, very exciting. And Irina was in Australia for the Australian launch of Kinetica. I had a chance to sit down with her and learn more about her journey and about the product as well. Irina studied mathematics and computer science at MIT, and then she went on to do Masters of Science and an MBA at Stanford. She is a super impressive executive in the space. I really enjoyed the discussion with her. I hope you do as well. Here is the discussion with Irina. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm sitting down with Irina. Thank you so much for coming down. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being in Melbourne. Uh, thank you for having me. It's super exciting to be here and kind of as part of the celebration of us coming to Australia. It's great. I have so many questions for you about it. Before we get uh, onto that, can you tell us a little bit about how you get started in the world of data? What was it that first drew you into the space? Well, that's interesting. So I was a math major in college, yep. way before math was cool. And all my friends used to make fun of me for being a math major, and saying yeah. that I couldn't get a job ever. Oh, really? So I tacked on computer science yes. to maximize my chance of getting a job. Nice. You can imagine how much fun I have reconnecting with those friends mm -hmm. now that everybody's trying to be a data scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, my time, fortunately, unfortunately, and that was short-lived. So I actually started my career at Oracle as a software engineer. And I studied engineering. I thought I was naively, as any college graduate, I was God's gift to mankind. Yep. Oracle was waiting for me to solve the hardest problem. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Little did I know that, of course, I was part of a 500-person division with segmented, very segmented roles and responsibilities. So I started asking. I went to my manager and I said, what are we doing here? Who cares? Why is it important? And I was like, well, he doesn't really know. You know, he did his best. So if I work really hard and I become him, I still won't go. <laughs> so long story short, three months into my professional career, yes. I switched from engineering to product management and has never looked back. Interesting. I've never looked back. Right. And how was it the culture shock of that first job that led you to go down that path? How did you make that decision? Well, it was very risky and very yeah. nerve wracking because as an engineer, you feel so stressed about transitioning to more business function because you worry about losing your technical skills. Yeah. And you think, oh, is it a one way street? But I was like, I got nothing to lose. I'm just going to try and see what happens. I love it. And did you know much about what product management could be? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I just got an advice from somebody who had met me and thought, oh, this could be a good fit for you. And why do you think they said that? I think that was the person that kind of said, I just don't see you sitting in a cubicle writing a small portion of the software all day. I think... You don't know it yet, but based on your personality and kind of the way you think, you could actually be the bridge between the technical and business side. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know what he's saying, yeah. but 
I'm not happy where I am, so I might as well try. Yeah, right. Wow, what amazing advice. And obviously, it seems like quite spot on. Once you started as a product manager, what did your career look like then? Well, for the first year, every single day, I thought I was going to get fired (laughs) because I had no idea what I was doing. In an organization, in a large company, you are kind of expected to have a significant level of industry experience before you become a product manager, which was not the case in my case. Mm. So... Just figuring out a way to educate myself about the market, customers, and then gain credibility with senior engineering leaders in that environment was definitely, it was a busy first year. I probably worked every single night and every single weekend to try to understand where this was headed. And what did that look like when the work of trying to understand where the industry was heading, what senior leaders would expect from the technology, what the engineers would need? How did you learn the craft of being a product manager? Well, I think part of it was there was no training. There was no structure. So I had to quickly build my own structure. And part of it was just going and delving into very different things and then trying to understand where do they fit in and how do I prioritize? And it was probably a year in where I was like, okay, now I get it. But the first year, you're kind of just moving through and you're observing a lot of people and you're getting feedback, but you don't really like get it. Yes. And what was the feedback that made you realize that you were getting it or that you got it after that year? I remember there was a time when my boss's boss's boss called me at my desk and asked me about the project that I was doing. And I realized very quickly at that point that like the reason he called me and knew I existed is like everybody else could wash their hands off this thing. Yeah, which could be very good or very bad. Very bad. (laughs) So he called me and he said, what are we doing here? And I basically said, this is what we are doing here. This is the reality. But this is what I think we should be doing here. Based on my competitive and market research, Mm -hmm. I actually think that our strategy here is short-sighted as we look at things. I'm like, I got nothing to lose. He's calling me (laughs) on the phone and everybody's washed their hands of this. And it was interesting because he had asked, actually then asked me to lead this big initiative to help get from where we were to where we are across the organization and sponsored. And I was like, okay, it's paid off. Like all that research and time has paid off that then it was mine to make happen, which happened about a year later. Amazing. You know what they say that luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. Yeah, luck favors the prepared, right? Exactly, right? That's amazing. What type of product were you working on at the time? So it was a database management product. So your question, so I kind of started my career in data and trying to understand how to scale kind of management of data products in enterprise environment. Yeah, and was that at Oracle? That was at Oracle. Okay, Okay, so you were able to make the switch within Oracle. Yeah. Great. And what happened after that? I guess, very stressful conversation with the boss's boss's boss. Did that take a different direction? So then that project was successful. And then it's be careful what you wish for, because then I got the reputation for being the person who can get things that are difficult organizationally, getting them done. And then every difficult project would end up to do So I did, you know, a couple of years of exciting different projects there. But it was great because, you know, when you come out of college, you don't know what you're good at. Actually, like as you go through your career, every chapter, you actually don't know what you could be good at Mm. until you try it, until you get the experience. So for me, my career has been full of those chapters of taking on something that you have no idea about, figuring it out, and then moving on to the next thing. It's amazing. And when, ah, so many questions, because... 
being having that label of the fixer of tough projects, that's the best experience that anyone could ever ask for. Obviously, it's a huge burden. It's a, it's a lot of pressure. But looking back, you know, it's I like mean, a gift. I mean, so early in your career, right? Yeah. Like, if I had stayed in the previous trajectory, I'd build a couple of things, but I wouldn't get the exposure to just try different things. And the yeah. beauty is when you are in a larger company, the margin for failure is larger, right? Yeah. Right. And so you get the opportunity to do things you wouldn't normally, it may have been deemed too risky in other environments. That's right. And what kept you going during the tough time? I think for me, it was always learning and self-improvement. Yeah. Like I always, I'm a product person. So I always think in terms of roadmaps and horizons. Right? But in a lot of ways, I have a roadmap of horizon for myself of what is the next set of skills that I want to learn or I can. So if I'm in an environment, no matter how challenging it is, I'm like, okay, this quarter I'm going to do these things and I'm going to get exposure to this and then I'm going to try this. I'm like, until I'm here, that's the best I can do. So that's my approach. And how do you pick the skills that you're going to be learning? Well, that's a combination of the environment Mm -hmm. that you're in because sometimes you may want to learn something, but you have no ability to do it. So you have to be realistic about your environment and the opportunity. And then initially, early in my career, it was observing other people that I saw could do things I, d- I had no idea how to do. Right? So I'm like, well, what do they have? And then I became wiser over the years and recruited some people to actually be my mentors and help me pick those things. But initially, it was all just seeing people in the environment and trying to emulate or acquire those skills. And when you were seeing skill sets in other people uh, before you were able to learn them, was there any particular themes that interested you more or that you were had felt that you had to acquire certain skills more than others? I think it depends. I think there's a trajectory. But I'll tell you an example. I remember being a product manager a year in Oracle and realizing that all my peers were much senior than me, but they were in the world, were giving presentations at Oracle. I was petrified of public speaking and I had never done it. I set a goal for myself. I'm like, next year it's going to be me. But I had no idea how to get there, both to also get selected, but then to get myself comfortable to a place to do it. But I was like, okay, this is going to be my next skill. And it kept me up at night probably for like months. How in the world am I going to do that? But then step by step, you kind of break it down into more digestible things. And then I did it that year. And the following year, I did three presentations. It was no big deal. But the first one was so highly leveraged right? because it was the first time I had ever done something. Oh, amazing. And in the first year of trying to get to that goal, what were some of the tougher moments for you? I think just keep reminding myself that there's nothing in there that I cannot learn. I think as you progress in your career, you get more confident and you've done these things a few times where you're like, well, I've done this before. I'll learn something new. But initially, you actually don't know if you're well suited for this so you have to just kind of remind yourself that look it's not rocket science many many people have learned it Mm. nuclear engineering probably hard to learn learning how to present i can probably figure it out yeah so then the the confidence and i guess being centered in yourself was enough to get keep you going yeah and just being honest both propping yourself up but being honest what you do and do not know with yourself i think And I think something that's quite difficult for a lot of people who have that self-awareness and be able to judge their skills accurately. What has your career looked like since that year one in Oracle until now? Well, it's been great 
so I started my career in data. I started a local. Then I actually went to business school because I wanted to. I realized that living in a large company, I wasn't living in Silicon Valley. Mm. Uh-huh. So I'm a Silicon Valley native. My entire career has been in Silicon Valley. But I wasn't living. I was living in the world called Oracle. It's its own currency. And so getting outside of that and kind of the business school education that early in my career was a good way to get just broad exposure to a variety of business topics that I wouldn't have gotten as quickly there. Then after that, I've done a combination of I tried to change the world with smart grid. I had worked through a couple of smart grid companies. I tried to, I worked in networking and I ran an almost billion dollar business, prior to almost a billion dollar business in a software defined networking space. Nice. And then through the smart grid and the networking space, I realized that I was this product manager trying to reinvent those spaces mm-hmm. and I could never move fast enough. Yeah. And when I kept digging, it was always the data layer that was a problem because we were managing distributed systems where we had to collect data from those sensors, aggregate it, and make decisions in near real time to make those. And I could not understand as an ex-engineer, as a recovering engineer, why it would take so long when I'd come with something that seemed like a single aggregation that engineering, and we had amazing engineers, would take me, it's going to take months. So I started digging, and that's how I ended up in Connecticut because I realized that what we had here was a platform that would have short-circuited that. So I went back to data, and here I am. Because you were trying to solve the problem that had stopped you in the past. And how would you define that problem that obviously now Connecticut is filling that gap? But what is that gap? Well, the thing is, what's happening is you have a lot of bifurcation. So first of all, like analytics is changing. It's no longer go look at a report. Analytics, not even bringing in machine learning, is changing because you're collecting data in near real time, doing aggregations, then making decisions. Machine learning is just making all of that more complex because you now have to do on-the-spot feature generation. But the reality is you want to react to data continuously. And a lot of the technologies that have been built over the years are bifurcated into separate silos. So in many cases, you have to aggregate a streaming technology and a database technology, visualization, a bunch of different things into complex data engineering to make those applications work. And that's where the complexity and time delay and the inability to kind of deliver that experience is what's holding people back. So then that means that the you've seen that the products have become almost too specialized to a problem that's too specific? Yeah, there's a part of being able to specialize. There's also that old solutions can't fit into the new problem. Mm -hmm. So in the new problem space, Mm -hmm. they're just solutions that haven't been engineered for that. So in my role, I never say bad about any computer, mm-hmm. bad thing. But yeah. there's been an evolution where you know, some of the existing technologies just can't scale to Yeah. And then what's Connecticut's position in, in the new world? Well, we've been engineered from the ground up. Uh-huh. That's what we call active analytics. Okay. So being able to react to data as it's streaming in, being able to inform with historical information, and understanding things like location awareness. Yeah, because before that, location was combined to the GIS world, yep. not in, I have a smartphone, that's a location beacon. How do I calculate real-time analytics mm-hmm. and act on that data? And so we've done a lot of things to kind of make sure that you, as a developer, have all the tools to build that next generation of applications. To give you an example, like I think about Uber. So I live in San Francisco. I take Uber to work most of the time. So when I call Uber, it gives me a prediction of when I will get to work. It gives me a predicted price. 
it gives me a predicted fare, a predicted time for the driver to get there. What is it doing in the background? It's actually aggregating all the streaming data. It's running machine learning models in the background to be able to give me those predictions. We are giving a platform for everybody else to build their version of Uber in their business. That's kind of the stated goal of what Kinetica does. And what do you see are some of the challenges that Kinetica is helping people overcome? And that can be both from a technical perspective or a business perspective. But what, what are some of the main challenges that you guys are helping customers overcome during that process? So let's talk maybe about a few case studies. Yeah. So, you know, telcos are going through a big transformation with mm-hmm. 5G. I mean, all of us as consumers hear about 5G is going to revolutionize our world and we're going to have all the different applications. But the 5G journey first starts with actually planning a 5G rollout. And the beauty of 5G, that you have small cell deployments, which you have a lot more flexibility, but you also probably have a lot more complexity because now you need to understand and more carefully plan the 5G rollout. So we're helping telcos model their 5G rollout. And I'll give you an example. We're able to visualize and predict their RF propagation models in seconds. And with alternative technologies, it would take them 8 to 10 hours mm-hmm. for each iteration. So now if you're an analyst or a data scientist working as a telco, if each iteration takes you 8 hours, how many can you run? Mm-hmm. If each iteration takes you 10 seconds, how many can you run? Yeah. And so helping shorten that life cycle is really, really important. That's one aspect. The another story I would tell you is financial services. Mm-hmm. Every bank or financial institution in the world has to measure risk, and they have to report that risk yeah. to regulators. The beauty of financial services, they've done data science before data science was cool. Mm-hmm. Right? They actually have the model, yeah. and they have, but they can't run those models continuously. Today, in the best of institutions, models may be run once a day or even less than that as a batch process. And the question is why? Because it's really complex to get the streaming data, run the calculations, and then report on those. It's just a long process, and you don't have the ability to combine those disciplines. With Kinetica, there's no complex data engineering. We just run the calculations continuously and have that real-time view of risk as the market data is changing. And could you talk us through how those improvements work? Like, how is it that a telco modeling, their infrastructure rollout can happen orders of magnitude faster? That's a good question. Yep. So there are a few key differentiators. One is, you know, Kinetica is a GPU accelerated platform. Mm-hmm. So you get the power of much more computing and a distributed system. And then there's also a lot of innovation from the software architecture perspective, where we're collapsing a lot of the different aspects of the stack. This is why we can handle streaming historical data together or run machine learning models within the same engine. So both of those is both kind of the power of the GPU acceleration, as well as the software architecture innovations that help you collapse the stack for those new applications. Okay. So does that mean that... uh, it's more applicable to certain types of problems that can be parallelized with that type of architecture, or do you see that it has less limitations in that? It depends. It's yeah. applicable in different scenarios. It's applicable definitely in the scenario where you have to understand location intelligence, where you have to take streaming data and interpret it in the context of historical information. 
when you want to run machine learning models continuously in production and help understand that. So it's not just, you know, a lot of our customers are large enterprises that operate at a huge scale, where for many of them, just the level of data analysis that's required to help build out and kind of support their business case is really, really complex, and they need to move it to real time. When you think of complex analysis, real-time data, Kinetica becomes the answer, the natural answer for those scenarios. And before you said that the product helps with feature engineering, how is that done? Well, the beauty of Kinetica, so think of it, what is feature engineering? It's doing some computations on your data to then transformations on your data to then feed into the model. So in a deployment scenario, what we can do effectively is as the data is streaming in, calculate your feature against your streaming historical data and then feed those into the model Mm -hmm. to help output. So the feature engineering can happen as real time as you want it because of the capabilities. In the background, I assume that the... Can you talk us through the some of the architecture or the software, how it works in the background? Because it sounds like it is distributed, parallelized. What are some of those features that you can share with us? Well, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. It's an in-memory distributed system mm-hmm. that can sit on top of all the data you have. So let's say you have data in your data lake like HDFS or S3. You can connect all of that data to Kinetica and will transparently manage it for high-performance analytics. The other thing, as you were going from an architecture perspective, is that no bifurcation of streaming historical data. So we can get high-speed distributed ingest into the platform and make it available for large-scale analytics mm-hmm. immediately. So the data engineering aspect that we were talking about, that today if you have streaming data and historical handled separately, yeah. You're doing a lot of data engineering and transformations to marry the two together. With Kinetica, there's no such notion. And the third thing is really focused on the developer tooling, where the two developers is just a standard, looks like a standard relational paradigm with supporting SQL and full set of REST APIs, and of course, R for data scientists, to help interact with the system and do large-scale analytics. Yeah, right. So R is able to run directly on the software. That's great. Uh, how about Python? As well. Oh, great. Yes. yes. Yeah. So all the data science tooling, so it's whether you're an analyst, you're a data scientist, or you're an application developer, give you that consistent set of tooling that you can use to build models or applications or anything that you like in your mind. And in that case, does that mean that the code gets run on the infrastructure where your software is on? Or do people still need to extract the data and run it on their side of the machine? It depends. Yeah. Depending on, and there's going to be a lot of innovations coming in the space, Exciting. so watch yeah. the news. There's <laughs> some things that I can't really talk about, but it's up to you. You can use Kinetica to accelerate the data science lifecycle. For example, we have customers that are analyzing close to half a trillion row data sets mm-hmm. and enabling their data scientists to interact we explore those data sets. And that's a game changer from like CSV exports to analyze, interactively analyze close to a trillion row data yes. set. But then there's also, you may have already built your model. We give you the ability to bring your model and deploy that code close to the data because we believe in data gravity. And so bringing the models close to your data and running them as part of the applications is the second. You can do that as well. Nice. And you said that there was REST APIs as part of the platform. Those need to be custom built by the developers or the users, I guess, or does it come? No, it's all, the REST APIs are there. Uh So you can call them as part of the application Okay. as you're building the application. Is there then a use case for people to use the same platform or an 
I'm so happy you asked that. Yeah. Because what we see with a lot of our customers that it's almost a transformation journey. Mm. That initially you use the platform to uncover insights, yeah. whether in an analysis or data science context. A lot of the things we see that people struggle to democratize access to data for their data scientists. And ultimately, your models are as good as your data. And so there's the journey where we help them develop more accurate models and more accurate analysis. But then as they build those, they deploy them within the platform for custom applications. Because ultimately, everybody wants to reinvent their customer experience, optimize their operations. And then when they do that, we actually do a lot of things to audit and govern how those models are performing in production. So then gives you the ability to do that iterative life cycle mm-hmm. of learning from what you're learning in the field. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about that because that's a huge challenge um, at the moment and definitely in Australia, huge, huge problem. So everyone's asking about how to deploy operationalized models and how to manage the life cycle once that mm-hmm. they're out in the wild, right? What's your perspective? How does your product help with that side? Well, it's interesting. So we help a lot, but tell you on the person and we'll get there. Yeah. There's a typical, there's a very significant paradigm that's happening in software development. Back in like 10 plus years ago when we heard software is eating the world. Now it's AI is eating the yeah. world. But why is this shift significant? Because when software was eating the world, if you will, we built the software lifecycle methodology to manage code, release code, integrate code. But AI, and AI here used interchangeably with ML, mm-hmm. right? but I know they're not necessarily the same. The difference is that it's not about code. It's about you give it input data, output data, and the code is, code is produced by the machine. Mm-hmm. So this transformation is actually about data, not about managing code. And so we have a very strong perspective that in order to go through this transformation effectively, you have to fundamentally change how you manage data and understanding of data. So with Kinetica, we do a few things, specifically because we've been really focused on that problem. One is, how do you deploy models more effectively in your production applications? And today, a lot of data scientists get frustrated because their projects never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is, is because just to get to hello world of an application that has a model is a huge upfront investment. Much less in larger enterprises, you have a bifurcation where nobody knows what's running where, which version, and how do you manage the life cycle of those models. So what we allow you to do is actually bring your models to your data and deploy them as part of your data flow. The other thing is everybody talks about, well, how do you do explainable AI? Spoiler alert, I don't have a way to re-engineer the neural networks. We don't know yet. But what we can do is govern the inputs and outputs to those models. So you can then, as a data scientist or data engineer, take a look and try to analyze what happened and analyze the effectiveness of your models over time. That's step one. Second thing, from a governance perspective, if I call the help desk and say, hi, my name is Irina, and I don't like my credit score, how do you as an enterprise know which model was used to predict this and what data was fed into that? So what we do that every inference that's been made, we automatically audit the inputs and outputs. And guess what? We're a GPU-powered analytics platform. We can help you find that needle in the haystack. Or you can say, Irina, which models were used to predict the credit score at which time and find that information so you can help build the auditability and the discipline of understanding data into your process. 
So that's really interesting. So you're able to audit both the, the data in and out of the model, plus the version of the model alongside with, I assume, any versions of packages that were used to build the models. Does that sit within your ecosystem or is that separate? Right now, we, in a lot of ways, assume that the customer builds the model and then brings it as a container to us. Oh, okay. So because we focused on a lot of how do we make it super simple to integrate into your application. Take the container from your data that your data scientist integrated into the application. Over time, as you can imagine, as people are building models using Kinetica more and more, because of the power the analysis we can do, we may do more things there. But for now, we're really focused on how do we plug in and give you the tools, our Python, and then bringing your models as a container yeah. so you can run that within this platform. That's a really important piece in terms of flexibility for the users and having yeah. standardized environments and etc. That's great. So what about the data auditability? How is that done within the platform and I guess how rich is the auditability so um, a lot of people think about data lineage Mm -hmm. and being able to understand where the data is coming from how it's been transformed over time and then as you said where Mm -hmm. and how it's been used how does that work? That's exactly we think about that Mm -hmm. because we have Remember, we allow you to deploy your models in variety. You can deploy the same model in a streaming batch or an on-demand context, Mm -hmm. right? And so the usage, of course, changes. But the lineage remains very similar because you take the raw, the origin data, Mm -hmm. you apply the feature transformations, and then you store the outcome into those models. And we make sure all of that is immutable. So you can't go and change that. And then you can either interact with it and search for it, or you can produce an audit report yeah. and actually audit everything that a particular model was doing. So then you'd keep track of what's job, what container, what algorithm was running, etc. Keep a log of that, and then it's immutable. That's really good. Yeah, really helpful. And look, we are trying to kind of help our customers that are trying to integrate machine learning into their application. Because ultimately, data science, machine learning, in many companies, it's still a very side thing. It's on its own. And we're helping them make it mainstream in the way that operates at enterprise scale, at enterprise level of complexity, but also with the assurances that enterprises need to take on something. You know, you see plenty of headlines, AI bias. A car crashed, what model was deployed, all sorts of things. And we're trying to kind of smooth those barriers, help them overcome those barriers while taking advantage of innovation. Yeah, very true. Is there anything else that you guys do around data governance? And that can be around access controls, user roles, anything else that we haven't, that I haven't asked you about? So we, because we're an enterprise-grade system, uh-huh. so we assume all the user controls and entitlements, all of that is built in. So the machine learning capability just in- inherits a lot of those things that you have. So absolutely, controls around data segmentation are built into the system as well. And once those machine learning models deployed, what type of information do you keep track of in that case? For example, do you look at data drift? So when the data that's being uh, sent to the model in production is different to the data that it was trained on, and is there alerting and monitoring around that? What, what does it look like? We haven't really invested yet into kind of learning. We we'll leave it to the kind of data scientists and giving them the data to analyze. Yep. But the beauty of the platform is you could define those queries or those things that you want to monitor for and actually get alerted mm. if something Today, we don't have the inherent knowledge of what you're trying to do. So we haven't built in the monitoring for drift, but that's kind of becomes something that would give our users ability to do. Yeah, fantastic. 
And can you give us a, a quick history lesson of the company? Like, where did it come from? Where did it start? So it's interesting. So the company actually started as a project within the U.S. Army. So it was used to U.S. intelligence. There's usually reasonable budgets involved, as yep. you can imagine. And the founders were tasked with helping track, basically, terrorists in real time. And in order to do that, you had to run large-scale analytics against 200-plus streaming data feeds from drones and cell signals, etc., visualize things across time and space, and run some custom algorithms against them. And money was no object. They could use everything, anything they could market, and nothing could keep up with that volume of streaming data, the complexity of analysis, and running those algorithms. So they built the system from scratch. And that actually Genesis story is very important to understand because every technology where it starts is kind of the lens through which it sees the world and what it turned out that in our case U.S. government was kind of ahead of the time when it came to a lot of the IoT and analytics problems we're trying to solve now and so Kinetica was engineered for that challenge but this also gives you I think a glimpse hopefully into the reason why we serve world's largest enterprises because we built for scale from the very beginning Exactly. And then what's happened since then until now? What does the history look like? So now we've been in a commercial entity with just a few years, mm-hmm. three years. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, knock on wood, we've been in an incredible growth trajectory. We now have some of the world's largest banks and telcos, oil and gas companies, retailers using us for their mission-critical applications. And we're now Silicon Valley startup backed by some of the world-class investors. Our original investor and current investor is Ray Lane, who was the president of Oracle during its heyday and in a lot of ways credited for helping put Oracle in its growth trajectory. Really nice. And how long have you been with the company? I have been a little over a year and a half. Nice. And how's that time been? Oh, it's been fantastic. It's both feeling that I'm a product person. I like to envision the future Mm -hmm. and then build it. I think here coming in and having such an incredible foundation and then helping use what I've learned through all my previous jobs to then help grow this company, make it successful. And the level of stories and impact we're making with our customers is truly humbling. That's fantastic. And what does your day-to-day look like? How do you spend your time? What parts of the business and customers do you work with? What is yeah, your time look like? So the best thing about the product yeah. job, that there's no like one cookie cutter day because you're in the middle of so many different things. And now where I am, it could range from strategic planning, long-term roadmap, to direct customer engagement, mm-hmm. to helping evolve our process. Mm-hmm as a company to help both serve some of the world's largest enterprises and be a great partner while keeping the innovation pace. And that's probably the biggest balance, biggest challenge, is making sure we grow and we become this incredible trusted partner to the world's largest enterprises while still continuing our innovation pace. And I think this is where a lot of the my energy and investment has gone in. And thankfully, you know, I think it's paying off. You know, we were able to deliver that. Nice. And how are you balancing those challenges? As always, as you may guess, I have a roadmap <laughs> for the organization, right, of how we evolve to get there. And, you know, some of it is, you know, making sure we build the maturity in our processes and things. And this is really kind of picking up all the things I wish I had had in my previous companies and building it here. And it's really exciting because 
now a lot of our customers have tested us. You know, I'm telling you, like half a trillion row data sets, large always-on deployments, barring critical applications. And we've been able to stand up to those challenges, which is really, really important as you grow in as a small, innovative company. Yeah, that's right. And when you started, or when a company started as a commercial entity, what sectors did it get into first with customers? It's always hard to pick with a technology like ours because it's applicable to so many things, Correct. right, as you can imagine. But I would say our four biggest verticals are financial services, telco, retail, and government. And so those are just the sectors where there's a lot of the type of innovation that lands itself to Kinetica platform. Because, you know, in a lot of cases, if we go into an environment and we're like, well, I have existing reports that are slow, there are a lot of other people that can do that for but if, in many cases, we come in and they're like, well, we've always wanted to do this transformative thing for the business. We just didn't think we could. And they try it and they're like, oh, wow, you can now. And so we are focused on those opportunities. And those four sectors have been natural on where they are in their own for life sure. cycle. Yeah, for sure. And when did the international expansion begin? It happened pretty rapidly for us, which is, again, not very typical mm-hmm. for a startup, but we have now presence in Europe and in Asia Pacific. We have some of our largest customers in Indonesia and different countries. And of course, we're super excited to be finally coming to Australia. Exactly. So tell me more about that. How did you guys um, decide on coming to Australia? How has the preparation been looking like? What's been happening on your side? Well, I think for us, it's we always knew that we wanted. Many of us have done, people on the executive team have done business in Australia. Our CEO is actually Australian. Right. So we all know and understand the market. It was a matter of do we have the maturity as a company to go into this market and build a team? Once we realized that and we got to that stage and that scale, it was about finding a world-class team of people that could actually support us on the ground remotely. And we were very lucky to get a rock star team here. And so now we're ready to enter the market. That's fantastic. And then what is the plan from here on in, in Australia? Incredible growth, of course. (laughs) But it's really partnering with some of the largest companies in Australia and replicating a lot of the use cases that we've done at the world and bringing them to the Australian market. Yeah, that's excellent. How long are you spending in Australia at this time? Just four days. Yeah, right. So much shorter than (laughs) I was uh, hoping, but I'll be back hopefully soon. Definitely, that'd be great. And do you have any other stops as part of this trip? Yeah, we're going to Sydney as well. So we're doing our large Connecticut Live event in in Melbourne tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And then we're headed to Sydney for some cool customer meeting, prospect meeting. Soon to be customers. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Soon to be customers as well. That's great. And what can you tell us about what's coming up in the roadmap for Connecticut? I'll just say, I can't because some of this is before, but I'll say in a couple of weeks, you should be hearing some very cool, innovative data science things that make, you know, that address some of the questions you've had. So Uh watch this space. We'll be announcing some, what we believe are pretty cool capabilities to help data scientists build models quicker and more. Really great. And what was the last big announcement from Connecticut? What was included as part of that? Well, so the machine learning capabilities Mm -hmm. was what we call active analytics workbench. So ability to do this operationalizing machine learning, Mm -hmm. not just analysis at scale. So that was the other big capability was, as I mentioned, we're an in-memory system. Mm. But now with our tiered storage capability, the ability to 
analyze your entire data corpus, not just what you have in memory, has been really transformational for a lot of our customers. And so those were the big announcements. And as I told you, in a few weeks, there will be a few others that I'm personally super excited about. And can you explain to us a little bit about the tiered storage? What is that? What does that mean? And how does it allow people to get more of their data into the platform? Well, the thing is, when you think about the typical data science workflow, they will work on their machine, maybe DGX, if they're lucky and have a large footprint, but they get some sample of data that's been extracted from them via CSV file and something. But that constrained the data exploration you have. Now with Connecticut Your Storage, you can connect to your entire corpus of data. You may have data in S3 bucket. You may have your data in your data in an existing data warehouse. And you can analyze that entire data interactively. We will bring it into memory as needed Mm -hmm. to help you analyze it. But you are not confined by your workstation Mm -hmm. or your existing footprint. You have a guarantee that any analysis you run will complete. And that's the unique capability about Kitaka. And so now it's been, what I was telling you before, it's been transformational Mm -hmm. for some of our customers around democratizing data access for their data scientists. Because... They don't have to find the data. They can let their data scientists uncover insights at a much larger scale. Very much so. It's really interesting because it seems like in the platform, you have optimized and automated so much of the heavy lifting required in the data space in order to enable the analysts, the data scientists. Like It seems like you put so much effort into moving things around automatically for people, being able to process faster, deploy faster. And that's exactly it. It's interesting because people always ask me, well, like, what is it? Is it yeah. a database? Is it a streaming platform? Is yeah. it an ML platform? Yeah. And the thing is, what we're doing, we're converging, collapsing the stack yeah. around specific set of use cases, which we believe are the future. So it's all of those things and none of those things. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of the things that we're trying to do is, how do we make one plus one equals three? Yeah. So we dramatically improve the experience and scale for the people that operate our platform. And a lot of the nuance, this is where you remove a lot of that complexity in data engineering and scale restrictions that are now so built in into people's workflow that they think they have to live with. And that's where our focus is. And that's where a lot of time goes into for companies wanting to move into the space, wanting to accelerate their journey. They're often paralyzed by the amount of work that they need to do in order to get their data in one place, data in shape, being able to use it, deploy models. Yeah, like that hello world, getting to hello world is such an overwhelming thing. And then scaling it that you kind of, you know, it becomes overwhelming. Correct. It's really interesting. Yeah, the amount of work is amazing, actually. Yeah, really. How much has the platform changed in the time that you've been there? I was telling you the biggest things is the tiered storage and the machine learning model. But it's also the biggest transformation has been that we're just now all of a sudden got deployed in production in some of the world's largest enterprises at scale. And that is actually the most tremendous thing for any product. First, you kind of prove that you could do what you were saying. Prove not just to the world, but to yourself. And second, you just learn so much from those experiences. It's like a product person's paradise because that's how you learn and evolve the platform very rapidly. Sorry to interrupt uh, because I wanted to ask you that for a lot of people, when they think about going through the procurement processes of large enterprises and the stringent oversights and etc., they think about it as a world of pain. And then uh, you were saying that for a product person and definitely in, in your case, like it's, 
it's the dream almost. Well, the thing is, this is how you learn. And I'll tell you, like yeah. in some cases, it's long experiments. In other cases, because in a lot of ways, we always you know, go and talk to the lines of business and in partnership with IT. And, and a lot of the times, this is the partnership that's tried to solve some business critical problem and couldn't put that existing together. So I'd say for us, it probably moves a little bit faster yeah. than most enterprise things because of that kind of inherent capability. But yeah, for a product person, I always try to understand who are my buyers, who are the users, and what is the pain that they're feeling, yeah. and how do we alleviate it? And the more your technology is being used at larger and larger scale by more people, the more you learn. So for a product person, that pain is a necessary, necessary part of the journey. Correct. Yeah, which actually I didn't appreciate before our conversation. And it's interesting how drawn to the pain you are, <laughs> like willing to go through the pain. Um, and I guess like that's what shows how much you enjoy what you do. I guess it'd be the same for anyone that really enjoys what they do. There's a particular pain that they take that other people wouldn't take. And because they enjoy that pain, it means that they're good at what they do. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> well, the it. reason they work, call it work, it's yeah. not always fun, right? <laughs> so, so you kind of, the balance has to work out, right? For yeah. you, personally, that you're willing to put up with the pain for the good stuff. And <laughs> that balance is different for every person. Yeah, no, but well done with finding it early. All right, so we might, we might change tack and I'll ask you a few rapid fire questions. First one is, with everything that you've done, what are you most proud of that you have achieved in your career? I'll tell you a story. Mm -hmm. So when I left my previous company, I got a few, and I was the first kind of female VP in a technology function at the company. So we had women leaders in marketing and sales, but never in the technology. And when I left the company, I got LinkedIn messages from a few people that I had worked with. And they said, oh, we were your secret admirer in the way you handled yourself in this world. And I'm like, what, me? I was just so focused on my own struggle and things and just getting through the day that I hadn't realized that I no longer had a choice. I had to start giving back to people that were looking for my advice and steering, to whom I had implicitly become a role model. So what I have done over the past few years, which may be the thing I'm most proud of, is just starting to give back and mentoring both men and women that are high potential but are looking for that early coaching. I got lucky that I got that advice early on in my career where somebody realized that I would be good for product and I switched and here I am. But a lot of people don't get that. So making myself available to have those mentorship conversations and help people along their journey has been kind of an explicit area of focus for me since that realization. That's really nice. And how long have you been doing that for? So it's been a couple of years yeah. and an ambassador for one of the organizations we have and advancing women and product in Silicon Valley. And then a lot of it is just making myself available when people ask for help. It just takes that focus because you're so focused on the urgent that you forget some of the important things that you could be doing and just shifting that perspective. And what are some of the typical problems that people come to you with or some of the typical questions or guidance? Do you see any buckets so far? Well, it's interesting. A lot of the time people come and they're like, what would it take for me to get promoted? What should I do to get yeah. promoted? It's the most difficult thing, uh -huh. right? And it's interesting because I, in my career, have never asked for a promotion. Yeah. I have never asked of like, oh, I need to get the next title. And so my biggest advice is focus not on the titles. Focus on the stories and that you will tell and skills that you will build. And usually titles have their ways rationalizing or catching up with the experience you have. 
And so part of it, I think people are so focused on like, what do I need to do to make my boss happy to get that next promotion? Yeah. They forget what is important for them, their journey. And many times I just help them think like, what are the things that are happening in the organization? What are the things that you're interested in? And what could be the next set of things you could take on that will help you build that experience and help solve problems that are unsolved now that are important? In a lot of ways, because yeah, people a lot of times just focus on kind of the titles and that's just the corporate environment. Yeah. That's the world we've all lived in. But I try kind of talk through those kind of ways. And I also sometimes good to get an honest feedback outside of your management chain because that is a very kind of good relationship but also constrained by mm-hmm. the type of feedback you could get. Yeah, exactly. That's so interesting. So do you think that people are too short-term focused with their prioritization? As in like if they're trying to get that next promotion, are they not having a broader view? I think it's hard. Think about like in sport. You have a coach who is your built-in mentor that's kind of trying to get the best out of you and help you with skills. In the business world, unfortunately, most people never get that opportunity. And so all you get is this kind of ladder that you're trying to get into, and that's the currency because you don't have that coaching. So I would recommend to anybody, I once I understood that I've recruited kind of my co-travelers, which are people in my circle that can give me honest feedback and coach me through it. And I would recommend that everybody does the same, where people can give you more valuable experience about arcs or decisions that you could take that you would have never thought of based on the environment. I wanted to ask you, what do you think are the upcoming challenges in our space, sort of in the data space in general, or database technologies, parts of AI? Well, I think we kind of talked about those. Mm -hmm. And... Part of it is on the kinetic challenge, we are addressing those active applications, active analytical applications. But I think one of the biggest challenges is around the data governance. And we are so passionate about that that we actually partnered with the World Economic Forum and helping a part of the working group to develop their model governance framework. And the government of Singapore is actually leading the charge on that initiative. But we're very closely involved to help drive kind of awareness. And as also like, a lot of times you don't want to just highlight the problem. You want to have ideas for a solution, yeah. right? So we are very much bringing ideas to the table and experiences. But that's probably one of the more fun parts of my job is doing those types of That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and definitely working with um, the World Economic Forum with the government of Singapore. They're, they're heavy hitters in, in the data governance space. So Singapore has really strict laws, World Economic Forum. You know, they, they publish a lot of information that then companies take their leadership from. So great to see you guys involved in there and adding value contributing. Really amazing. This has been so much fun. Likewise. Fantastic. I only have one last question for you. And more questions? The tough one. The tough one. The, um, what is a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Something that has helped you or something that you have passed on to other people? What is something that you would like to end our discussion with? I may have to give you two things. Perfect. One is I'm a big fan of Maya Angelou. So I use her quotes a lot. Love it. And one of those is like, don't try to be normal, I'm paraphrasing, because you'll miss an opportunity to be exceptional. And I do think my advice to you people is kind of figure out what your superpowers are. What could you be best class, best in your profession at? And focus on those things. And understanding that you can't just fit the mold in everything. 
Because a lot of the times, when you once you nourish and develop your superpowers, the other things can come, or you can balance them out by hiring. I do a lot of hiring people on my team that don't have the skills I have, that have the skills I don't have, because that's a complementary thing. When you focus on your superpowers, and then you can really be amazing. But if you try to kind of fit what you think somebody wants you to be, then you're just one of the bunch of people. You don't stand out. And then it just really, you never realize your potential. And the other thing would be is a lot of people come, go through their career and they're like, well, I see this big problem in the organization that needs to be solved. And they go and talk about the problem. Unfortunately, in most cases, they become part of the problem. And my approach has always been, I spend a lot of time in my ample spare time, not really, but I do (laughs) spend a lot of time thinking through like, okay, what are big foundational things that are concerns that nobody's kind of thinking about? But then I always try my superpower, if you will, throughout my career has been of putting a roadmap to solve those. And it could be business challenges, technology challenges, etc. It's coming with a first draft of solutions. Because a lot of the times, leaders know it is a problem. Mm. If you have good leaders, they just don't yet know how to solve it. And part of it is just being part of that solution. And that goes back to focus on the stories you will tell and what do you want to solve. Because when you do that, you both, you're developing your own skills by stepping outside your immediate comfort zone. And then you're also showing that you're the type of leader who could take on these problems with bringing solutions to the table, not just highlighting the problems. And I think this is pretty common now in the data science space. And so I think for data scientists specifically, it's coming with creative ideas, how to solve some of these challenges that businesses are facing would be a valuable thing. Amazing. Amazing. That is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming in. Welcome to Australia. Thank you. And I wish you guys all the best. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu.au. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's we are Rubik's, all one word. We are Rubik's.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. 
If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.